If you've got a Bible, can you please turn to Matthew chapter 25? We're going to be looking at the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they had no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But as midnight, but at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going, uh, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterwards... The virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know, and I do not, uh, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. We uh, are on a series uh, looking at the parables um, of Jesus, and this is one of them, the parable of the ten uh, virgins. And it advances Jesus' teaching uh, about his return. And in, in the previous chapter, 25, verse 42, he says this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He says to the people, be watchful. Be looking for my return. This is... Jesus' message to his people. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 45, he said, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? So he's now saying, not only have you got to be watchful, not only have you got to be ready, not only have you got to be looking, but you should be faithful while you are doing that. You should be reliable. You should be consistent in, in your character and in your serving. And then we come to verse 50, which is the key verse. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know. Now there is a huge amount of teaching on the return of Christ. And uh, every now and again I get sent some stuff uh, in the post about it. And it's interesting that even in today's uh, Christian church that people still obsess quite a lot in terms of the date and the time of Jesus' returns. And yet we don't obsess very much about how we should be in preparation to his return. And the point here, even in verse 50, is that there is an element of surprise in the return of Christ. That's the point of it. The point of it is some part of it will be a surprise 
And the reason for that is that God knows when Jesus will return. And the reason that you don't know is that he's God and the choice is his. And that very fact alone demonstrates him to be God. God will send his son at the appointed hour. That makes him God. So what I want to do first is that I want to uh, look at some notes from the parable first, just work my way through it and put some application <clears throat> on it towards the end. But we will have a little poke around as we go. Jesus introduces this parable very differently to any other parable that he, that he tells. He starts it off in verse 25 by saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like... And the parable tells us about the point of his return, but tells us that the point is unknown, and it tells us what what he will find on his return. It's going to be like this. The kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. And the parable actually paves the way to a wonderful image uh, as Jesus to be pictured as this glorious bridegroom returning for this magnificent church. And Jesus, the parable sort of begins to introduce that concept, which would be picked up by the Apostle Paul. This is Jesus, our bridegroom. This is the church that he's returning to. And the ten virgins, they are the bridesmaids. They are the girls that are not yet married And the story actually follows a very typical Jewish wedding. So I want you to come with me to a Jewish wedding, if that's okay. This is what happens. The groom leaves his family home, and he leaves the family home uh, with his close family and friends. And what he does is that he forms a little bit of a procession, and they will walk through the town or village Uh, to the home of his new bride. So I want you to imagine that. There's a load of family and they're just walking through. Now as they were walking through the village, people would come out in anticipation to something that was going to happen later. Sometimes people would wave things out of windows. Sometimes people would blow musical instruments. Some people would sing and clap. But there is something that is going on like that. So they get to the, uh, the bride's home where the wedding ceremony will take place. It takes place in the bride's home. So if you can imagine that, Tim and Rachel, we wouldn't have got in our front room. So the home must have been a little bit bigger. But there, that's where that we, it, would, it would have happened. And the, the wedding ceremony would have been carried out with the two families being there. Then the entire wedding party form an even bigger procession and they walk again through the town or the village to back to the home of the bridegroom uh, where there would be a, a feast and a party that could last for days uh, and that was the the way that it would have worked now the ten virgins have lamps This is not like the lamp, if you remember in another parable, where Jesus talks about putting it under a table. This is an outdoor lamp. It's much larger. Uh, It's dome-shaped container, and it has rags in it uh, that would have been soaked in oil. 
And these lamps uh, lasted for hours, but they did need to be replenished. So you needed uh, to soak a different rag and, uh, in oil and put it in there. And uh, the five virgins have uh, fully stocked up on lamps and, and five virgins have not. And uh, they're going to do that because what they're going to do is that they're going to walk through the streets at night. And now we come to this statement, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And this is not a reference to Jesus being delayed because things have occurred that are, are out of his control. It's just part of the story. And what it means is simply that the bridegroom is on his way and it's his choice when he will arrive Believe it or not, this is very important in terms of end-time theology. The choice is his. We've looked at that. What we've been asked to note, though, is that all the virgins have fallen asleep, which is a reference to us, guys. I don't know whether you've thought about that, but that is a reference to us. They have all become very weary in waiting. Now parables sometimes are a little bit like this. We tend to think of them as little bit little nice little stories that sort of are cute and that you give them, you know, you tell the story in Sunday school and things like this. But actually, sometimes these parables aren't they hugely stark and quite damning? Because what this is saying is that we have become weary in waiting. And it's important because this is describing the nature of the bride's home, the church. The church has become weary. It's, be, it's, it's become drowsy. It's sleeping and needs to be woken up. Now, you can take that personally or we can take that corporately, but it's interesting Jesus' view on it, isn't it? And I would say to us, church, and me, Nigel, I need to wake myself up in terms of Jesus' return. Now, after a long time, there's a cry that rings out in verse 6. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. And the ten virgins start running around frantically. Time to sort out their lamps, ready for the procession that would go through uh, at night through the village and the town. And the aim of the procession is that this procession would be clearly seen by all. The lamps would be bright. The procession would be long. The noise would be incredible. And everybody in the village would know there's a wedding passing by. And this is the point of Jesus' return. Jesus' return this time will be in a blaze of glory. It will not be in a stable in the back of beyond. This time it will be magnificent in the fact that everybody will see. And we see this prophetically coming to play in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him 
uh, and even those, it says, who pierced him. Every eye will see. The procession will be magnificent. The noise will be glorious. The sight will be incredible. And everybody, good and bad, will see it. Now things have gone wrong for five of the ten virgins. Verse 7, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. See, the wise virgins can't help the foolish virgins, because if they do, their lamps are going to go out. And they're not going to get to the destination either. But also the wise virgins have been rather sarcastic to the foolish virgins. Because will there be some, do, uh, some oil dealers that are open at midnight? The point of this is that there are people who are ready for the celebration and there are people who are not ready for the celebration. You know, the foolish virgins do eventually find some oil and they return late. Now they might have returned late because they found it, lit it, and and then came. Or they might have been late because they had to wander around in the dark and then find somebody. We don't know. What we do know is that there are people that arrive to this wedding feast late. Again, it's stark, isn't it? There will be a wedding, there will be a feast, there will be a procession, and there will be people who will arrive at this wedding feast just rather late. The reason for referring to the virgins as foolish and wise is very clear. The one group is ready and the other group is, is, is uh, unprepared. They're the wise ones. And the other group is not ready and unprepared. That's the foolish. And Jesus is asking his listeners to put themselves into two categories. Again, See, these parables, they're very harsh, aren't they? And he's asking them, well, now which category are you in? Are you wise or are you foolish? Now, you wouldn't do that in Costa Coffee, would you? But Jesus does. Jesus, remember, is standing in front of a group of people in Costa Coffee in his day, and he's saying to them, are you wise or are you foolish? And we have become a little bit, haven't we, as church? In, well, we, you know, we live in a day where we can't actually say that. But actually, we're living in a day where we are not actually saying the words of Jesus. We're saying the words of, of sort of the way that the world has become. Jesus would not address people in the same way as we do. And we need to recapture things. Right at the very beginning, I think Phil stood up and he said, these are the words of the king. These are the words... Of the king. The king says some people are wise and some people are foolish. Wow. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. I want you to get an imagine, I want you to imagine this. That isn't, this isn't the door was shut. 
This is the this is was this wasn't like one of these doors closed. This means this was permanently shut. This was physically unable to be opened again. That's the idea that we're to get here. The foolish virgins were not ready or prepared, and the door was closed on them. There is a moment when the door of the kingdom of heaven, there is, there is moments, and we're living in that moment right now, when the doorway to the kingdom of heaven is open. Today is that day. The kingdom of heaven's door is open. It's open for you. If you accept that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, and you renounce sin and follow him, the kingdom of heaven is open for you. But there is also a day when the kingdom of heaven's door will be firmly shut and it will not be open. And I would be wrong to not tell you that that day exists. I'd be wrong to say to you, don't worry, live life, enjoy life. Don't worry about it. Tomorrow, sort it out tomorrow. The Bible doesn't tell you that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The door is open, but it will be shut one day, and it will be shut firmly. Now we're brought to some incredible imagery, and I want you to go there with your imaginations. I want you to activate your imaginations in terms of this. We, we went to see um, Hillary's paintings uh, on Friday. Uh, the, the gallery is open all week for you to go. I would like you to go and see some of the imaginations that have been put in film, canvas, clay, pottery, jewellery, all sorts. The imagination of people that are in this university is awesome. Some of it I don't like. Some of it is not my personal taste. But boy, have we got a people who can imagine. I want to pray tonight about that as part of the prayer meeting tonight. Because what is extraordinary is that we have a a gut load of people who have got creativity which the church needs to mobilise. And so I'm asking you, church, right now, to get your imaginations going just a little bit. Activate them. Because I want you to imagine that you are standing right by that door. I want you to imagine that the door, there is a door, there is, that there is a door, and it's shut on one side. And on this one side are the foolish virgins. They are on, they are at this door, and they're standing at this door, but it's firmly closed. There's an inside, and there's an outside. It's very stark. We've got our lamps. We've, we've lit them. The procession's gone before. Can you imagine the panic that is running through them? We, we, we've got to get to this party. We've got to get to this wedding feast. We've got there, and the door is shut. But we got the lamp, didn't we? Surely, surely you understood that. We got the lamp. 
We did it, didn't we? Didn't we do this? Isn't that a cry of agony? Didn't we do this at the 11th hour? We got the lamp, we got the lamp. And they don't know what to do because it's closed. So they shout, Lord, Lord, can you imagine this? They're hammering on this door, Lord, Lord, open the door. It must have been absolute agony because they've now got their lamps. And, I, and we've been asked to feel the tension. And the other side of this door, there's one hell of a party. No, that's the wrong word to it. It's, there's one heck of a party. No, it's not one hell of a party. There's one heaven of a party going on on the other side. Can you imagine? The door is closed, but you know what it's like when you go past, where does Derek work? Sleepy Panda. You go, the food must have been coming, wafting over those walls. The noise would have been incredible. There are people laughing and partying and dancing and singing and shouting. You can smell the food. And you're hammering on the door. But it's too late. They're shouting, Lord, Lord. Maybe they'd seen at the 11th hour who the bridegroom finally was. Maybe they're trying to flatter Jesus and sort of say, Lord, yes, Lord, open the door. We don't know. But I don't know whether you've got this yet. But please get it right now. The anguish for these five virgins is extraordinary. There are one group of people that are partying their heads off and there is another group of people where the anguish is just too much for them. And you are placed as the reader of this parable on the other side of the door with them. It's awful. But it is far too late. They eventually do get a reply, verse 12. But he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. It's very blunt and it's very straightforward. And it will be the way that it will be when Jesus returns. There will be a group of people who will cry, Lord, Lord, but it will be too late and Jesus will look at them and say, I do not know you. Look at the rejection. The rejection is very personal. I do not know you. You. Throughout the Bible, God talks about a people as the one the ones in whom he knows. I know you. Meaning that you and I have had a relationship together. You see this in the prophet Jeremiah. You see Jeremiah's uh, uh, description of his relationship with God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you you 
as a prophet to the nations. And, and Jesus with the, has the Pharisees in mind and he reminds them and he reminds us that it's not a religion that saves us and it's not an attendance that helps us. But, but if you want to get to the bridegroom's party, the kingdom of heaven, it's through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the way that it happens, folks. It's do you love him? Do you follow him? Is he the number one in your life? Is he the most important? I have a relation. Yes, I know this person called Jesus. And Jesus turns and he addresses his listeners directly to drive home the lesson. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. Be ready. Be prepared. Live as if I'm about to return. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But this is so important because followers of Jesus are defined by this one, or one of these things. And this, one of these things is this, that we are people who are watching and ready for the return of Jesus. So it should be something that you could grasp. So what I want to do is just give you some application. They're not that long. But I want to just talk about first being ready. Well, are we ready for his, ter- for his return? Church, are we watching, therefore, for his return? These are just some practical things. We'll do some practical things, and we'll do a little bit of a, a verse on the end. So the first one is, how invincible do you think that you are? How invincible do you think that you are? Invisible? Invisible? It should be Invincible. Sorry, how invisible do you think that you are? Well, sorry. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do a spell check on one of the Invincible. It should be invincible in the notes, Denzel. Do you want to rewrite my notes? Okay. Can you explain that afterwards? Okay. Okay, okay. Do you know, there is a sense in which we think that we've got plenty of time to get our lives sorted out and straightened out. And we, we plan as if we've got plenty of time, don't we? Uh, we live life with God as if it's, it's all right. Um, he will be back in a minute and, and when I get back, he'll be there. You know, don't worry. You know, that sort of thing. I can come to church in four weeks' time or five weeks' time because... The people will be there and God will be there and that sort of thing. I, I uh, heard this one the other day, um, uh, talking uh, with somebody about somebody that had attended our church. And the quote was this, uh, God, uh, God and church are on the back burner for a while. Wow. Uh, and there is that sense of which God and church can be placed on the back burner. That actually what we do with God and we, we do with church is that we, we have our life um, and our life is the primary thing and then God and church are the sort of secondary thing and we live like this. But one of life's most difficult lessons is simply this, that our lives are not our own and according to Jesus, they can be taken away from us at any one moment. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord says there's a day to be born and there is a day to die. And I think there is a sense in which we live today as invincible. We're living in as an invincible people. But one of the marks of the church is that I am ready for whatever might happen with my life, but also whatever might happen if Jesus returns. Uh, Phil and I, will, uh, we remember this horrible film that frightened us to death, but there was a, a film about the return of Christ. And I could, I could admit, it has frightened me to the point that I don't like to say things like this anymore. But actually, the counter-argument with that is that the church has sort of lived in this invincibility about itself that there will always be a tomorrow. There will, we can always put things off. Don't worry, it will be all right. But actually... Jesus may well yet return or my life may be called from me and I need to be a person and we need to be a people that is ready either for his return or my call to go home. So how invincible are you? I will finish it with a positive thing. You're all right. Secondly, and I hope that I've spelt this right, is your lamp working fully or fully working It's really interesting. I want to appeal with you. Don't love God because you need him or love him because you are nearing the end, which is the way that people can love God. God can be something, I need God right now. But then people leave God when they don't need him. Or don't love God because you think that actually you might be, something might be happening and and that it's it's interesting even even in that people you know they they become sick and they need god it's really interesting isn't it how many requests that i would get for people that do not attend church but would expect me to go and pray for them when their relative becomes sick so they do not need god now they don't need god they don't need to come to church now but when they are sick they want me to go to their bedside and pray for them Because they need God now. And yet God tells these virgins, is your lamp ready? Is your lamp ready? Are you serving God with it brightly ready? Are you willing to serve? Are we ready at any moment for the procession to come? Whether that be in private or public, Let's not be embarrassed to hear that cry. The bridegroom's here. Oh no. I wish I wasn't here. I wish it wasn't with these people. I wish I wasn't doing that. No, the bridegroom's here. There should be a sense of celebration. Oh no, I need to stoke the lamp a little bit. No, don't stoke the lamp. Get the lamp ready. That's the point. The whole point of it is, oh no, when the cry comes, the bridegroom's here. Don't go, where's my lamp? No, have it brightly ready for you, whether in private or in public. Have you forgiven all that you need to forgive? Have you said all the things that you'd like to say to those that you love? Have you put your energy into those Things that God puts energy into. Is that, how's those lamps doing? Husbands, have you said what you need to say to your wives? 
Wives, have you said what you need to say to your husbands? Church, let's not have it as something that is on the second agenda. This is Jesus' church. He loves it. He's returning for it. Let's have church as glorious as it can be so that when he comes, we can go, the party's already begun. Are you prepared for the wedding? The Jewish custom of the bridegroom coming at any one time would have added a magnificent sense of tension to it. I had the, uh, the joy, uh, I've had the, the joy of, of, of leading wedding services and being a dad. And it's really funny that when you're leading wedding services at the front and you're waiting, you're doing this bit. And I'm not here yet. And you can watch the person doing the bloke and he's doing this and you know have I got time to go to the loo and all this sort of stuff and there's a little bit of sort of thing and and there's a real sort of and you're thinking I want to get on with this and what are they doing and then they arrive and what does the photographer do he wants to take photographs don't take photographs. Let's start this blasted thing. Let's get this thing going. And you feel that. And, you, and people, uh, people say to me things like this. My stomach's rumbling. Because we always have weddings around lunchtime, don't we? And you have that strange thing where in weddings. You go, should I eat before or afterwards? And, and they say things like, have a, have a little piece of cake just before the wedding. And then you eat. What time do you eat in weddings? Three o'clock in the afternoon. You never eat at three o'clock in the afternoon. So what you do is you stand in front of the people, there's hundreds out, and you stand there waiting for the bride to come and your stomach rumbles. So does everything else. Lift the music up. The whole thing is full of in, except when you're the dad. And you're going, take your time. Make an entrance. Slow it down. Let them sweat. This is about you. It's not about anybody else. He can wait. Let's make this a point of glory and magnificence. Just take the take another photograph. <laughs> we sort of delight. And the whole thing is about... And the idea, folks, is that this is supposed to be about anticipation and expectation. That's what it's supposed to be. And it's what's missing, I believe, in the nature of the, of the Christian and the nature of the church. I think it was, if I may be as bold, it, it was missing a little bit this morning, wasn't it? And we need to stir it within us. The sense of preparation to meet with the bridegroom. That sort of get, oh no, we're, we're in together to meet with the You wake up and you think, the bridegroom, the bridegroom. I'm going to meet with all my friends with the bridegroom. And that expectation, did you walk through the doors? Was your stomach turning over and your emotions jangling? In a minute, what Phil will do is he'll hit those keyboards. Joe will bellow that note. Tim will whatever. And together we will worship the bridegroom. Yeah, I sort of sauntered in with me. And it starts, and actually, it's key to it. If we're going to do church, folks, then we've got to do it like a marriage. That's the way that we're supposed to be. This is a marriage. It's a, an anticipation of the bridegroom coming. So we want to be people who are full of prep, fully prepared and fully anticipated that in a minute, the bridegroom will end, the bride will enter and all that sort of stuff. Do you get me? Yes. 
So, go. Okay. Shut up, Noyant. Lots of different analogies going back and forth. Which life are you building for? This is my final point. Let's get this done. This is the good bit, okay? It has a little bit of sad bit in it. It's been half an hour. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And one of the most important ways that we can do with this parable is to... Have you noticed they put a mirror ball up there? I thought those, in its 60s, 70s, mirror balls. I wonder how we go. We need to send Steve the lights up there to make that. That would inha- That's what will make people worship, won't it? Get the mirror ball going. Do you, do you know, do you know that when we were in Rugeley, the reason that we chose the building that we did was because it had a mirror ball in it? Because we were in a meeting and somebody prophesied, you will know where to go because there will be a mirror ball in it. So I just walked around venues going, mirror ball, no, thank you. Mirror ball, no, thank you. Mirror ball, yes, this is the one. We're back again. But this could be God. Come on. It was a promise. Well, I like it. Oh, shut up. What should we do with the parable? We should not dismiss it as a story. We should, we should be not just hearers of it, we should be doers of it. So we take the parable and we, we refuse to let it pass by. We act upon it. And one of the ways that I'd like to act upon it is by giving you a verse that is really unconnected and, and absolutely the rubbish way to preach a sermon. Preachers don't do this. I've just done it. And you shouldn't do it because it's something that I, when I was reading this parable, I was stirred by. It has, no, it has little or no connection, but it has some. So I failed in terms of doing the right thing. And Tim Harmon will tell me this afterwards. Um, but at least that I have not dissed the prayer meeting, <laughs> which he did in one of his sermons, which means by directly dissed prayer. Which, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. For this light and momentary affliction is, not, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are, are unseen are eternal. How can we apply this parable and those verses to us? Paul says in verse 16, we don't lose hearts. We don't lose hearts. We're not going to lose. I'm not going to lose hearts. Not going to do it. Going to refuse to lose hearts. You say what you like. Do what you like. Let, let what happen, whatever might happen. But I'm not going to lose hearts. How does he not lose hearts? He doesn't lose hearts. Because his affliction is momentary. Verse 17. My momentary light affliction. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that it will last 60 seconds, which is what most Christians believe. When this is over, I can do. No, that's not what it means. It means the momentary light affliction means that it only lasts a lifetime. What? 
But you see, it is momentary compared with millions of ages of millenniums, isn't it? You'll live forever. What does this earth's afflictions compare with eternity? It's momentary. And that's what it means. The word actually means present afflictions. The afflictions that that we have will not outlive this present life. Wow, I don't lose heart because my afflictions will come to an end. They will not have the last say in my life. My affliction will not have the last say. What is his other point? He doesn't lose heart because his affliction is light. (laughs) I think this is really funny, but nobody else does. But That's why I laugh. Verse 17, for this momentary light affliction, this is Paul's view. I always think, when Paul says this, Paul, have you lost your head? Because if you think Paul says, my afflictions, they are light. Mm. Light. Let's read them. Let's read what light afflictions look like. Then compare them to my fact that we struggled last night to find Callie's earring. And it was very stressful going to bed last night with only one earring. In fact, I got up at an unearthly hour this morning just to find, because it was an affliction as we went to bed. Don't let the Lord, you know, the wrath go down on your eye. We did, because we lost an earring. I said to go, we're going to bed now because it's dark. We're not going to find this earring. I got up this morning, I found the earring. The afflictions, they ceased. But it was an affliction. I don't, have you ever gone to bed in the midst of afflictions? It's a bit stressful, isn't it? Lying in bed with your wife when there's affliction. No. Don't lie to me. Are you? I know you. Anyway, let's look at light afflictions. Here they are. In far more labours, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, deep. I have been on frequent journeys. They have been in danger. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the wilderness. I've been in danger in the sea. I've been in danger amongst false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship. I've been through many sleepless nights. I've been in hunger and thirst. I've often been without food. I've been in cold. I've been in exposure. Apart from such external things, (laughs) there's my daily pressure for the church, which is greater than all those things, some of those things together. And when Paul says that his afflictions are light, he doesn't mean that they are painless. He means, again, compared with what is coming, they are nothing. They are nothing compared with the weight of glory that he is about to receive, they are absolutely nothing. They mean nothing to him compared with the glory that he is about to receive. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compared with the glory to be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. I do not lose heart because my afflictions, they are light compared and he doesn't lose heart because they 
he believes that they are producing for Paul an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. We finish with this, Joe, and then we go to like a virgin. Right? Okay. Verse 17. For, for momentary light and affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Comparison. There is a comparing that we need to do. What is coming to Paul is not momentary, but it is eternal. It's not light, but it's weighty. It's not affliction, it's glory. And it's beyond comprehension. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And the point is this, that afflictions merely precede glory. That's what they do. Your afflictions, they precede glory. But also, they help produce glory. And sometimes there can be a casual connection between how we endure hardships now and how we'll be able to enjoy the glory of God in ages to come. You see, not one moment of patient pain is wasted. It is... It is producing an eternal weight of glory for you beyond comparison. It is not wasted. Therefore, I do not lose heart, for my troubles are producing for me an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comprehension. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to allow the kingdom of heaven to shape you and for it to define who you are and what you do. Amen.